But what if there is a, a more efficient way of using the money that you're making so that your interest to income ratio, which is how much of what you make is sent out in interest, what if that ratio is smaller? You know, what if you're not sending 20 or 25%, you're sending 15% or 10%. It's like giving yourself an immediate raise. And so one of the goals my wife and I have had for years is how do we get down to a point where we're spending somewhere between four and 6% of our annual income in interest. And so the majority of the interest that we, that we pay um, is not against a liability. It's against an asset. So mm-hmm. not only mm-hmm. is it, we're willing to pay that interest, but it's also kind of creating financial arbitrage, interest rate arbitrage, because I'll happily borrow at 5% if I know I'm making 10. Welcome to Money Vision U. In this podcast, we are passionate about teaching the financial class you should have had in high school so you can learn how to fast track your financial freedom. If you want to learn how to make, manage, and multiply your money and see opportunities the way the wealthy do, then you came to the right place. I'm your host, Stuart Berryhill. Money Vision U, class in session. Welcome to another episode of Money Vision U. Today, we have a really cool guest on the podcast with us, Adam Carroll, and he has a wealth of knowledge, so much so that he's done even a TED Talk that now has over 6 million views, which we will definitely get into that along with other topics that a lot of people aren't educated on. But with that being said, welcome to the podcast. Stuart, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to see where our conversation goes because we could go in a a multitude of different areas. Yeah, and we both, I think, just love talking business and finances, so we could totally go all day too. Um, But just to start, give listeners some of your financial background because you talk a lot about uh, a lot, a lot of different things, including how to get out of debt quickly, making your income more efficient, and so on. But how did you get to this level of financial literacy? What what has your journey been like? Yeah. You know, interestingly, I was a broadcasting major in college and I was a complete financial screw up. I mean, I graduated as a debt statistic. I had, um, I had, I had been a rich college kid and I quickly became a broke professional when I graduated. Hmm. And it was through that and through a couple of really key conversations I had with people that got me started down the path of financial literacy. One in particular, Stuart was a mentor of mine that he was actually a client or a prospect first and then became a client. And I was in a, a sales job and, and I met this guy and he said, you know, tell me about yourself. And I went through the whole litany of where I was and, you know, I was newly engaged and looking forward to getting married and buying a house and all this stuff. And he goes, you need to go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, and, yeah. he, you know, he told me to go get that book. And he said, when you're done reading it and I want you to read it over the weekend, reach out to me and I'll take another appointment with you. And so I did. And he did. And he said, okay, now read the cash flow quadrant. And I want you to read that. And when you're done, call me and we'll have another meeting. And he just kept doing that to me. He'd give me a book and I'd read it. And then we'd have a discussion about it. And this guy, I didn't realize it at first, but was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. Um, he was in the oil and gas business. His wife had a PhD in molecular biology or something yeah. like that. And she had a patent on some product that was making millions of dollars a year. 
So together, you know, they were just at a completely different level. And um, I started learning and that's really what turned me on to getting excited about understanding how to blast away debt and buy assets and, and um, passive income and, uh, you know, massive, passive, permanent streams of income. So today I I think I, I have been blessed with 25 years almost of just study and research and experience that has helped me get to where I am. Yeah. Very cool. So pretty fresh out of college is what it seems like when you met this uh, person who sent you these books and then did you just read, I mean, were you glued to these books when you read them? Were they like the spark or it just kind of got your interest and then you kept met meeting with this guy who was in a place where you knew you kind of wanted to be one day. But I mean, cause I remember when I first read rich dad, poor dad, I think I read it in two yeah. days, you know, it was yeah. just like, Oh, Whoa, this is so different than what I'm used to hearing, totally. but it seems so right. <laughs> you know? It, and so tell us about your experience there. It was a spark. I mean, you nailed it. When I read that, that book, it was like, this is what I've been waiting for, what I've been missing. And mm-hmm. I think part of it was the digestibility of the book. You know, Robert Kiyosaki, he will often say, um, I'm not a, a best writing author. I'm a best selling author. The, the mm-hmm. book itself, people will read it sometimes and go, well, it's, you know, basic. And he's saying the same things over and over again. But that's what made it so digestible when I was, you know, in my 20s. And I think from that point forward, I realized that what I'd always wanted, which was financial success and, and ultimately freedom, it was hidden on the back end of that book. And if I would were to just apply what I was learning, then I could achieve what I wanted to achieve. Um, I think the other, the other uh, environmental thing that was happening, Stuart, was my wife was a nurse and she was working at night. She was working in the evening package. So I would work all day. I would come home. We may see each other as she was leaving for work, but then she would work from like 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. three days a week. And those evenings when she was gone, I didn't have anything else to do but read. And Mm. so I was reading all these books every night. And I I might finish a book every night or two. And I started uh, going down this path of financial literacy. You know, I'd go to the library or Barnes and Noble and I would just find a book that looked interesting to me and I would grab it and read it overnight. And within a year and a half or so, I had read 120 books on personal finance. Oh my gosh. And then just slowly started applying. Like, what can I take from this book? What one thing can I apply from this book and, and, you know, make tangible in my life. And one by one, all of those things just started stacking and created the level of freedom that we now have. Yeah, that that's very cool. That uh, I love how you got the spark and then you went all in. <laughs> 120 yeah, totally. books in a year and a half. And I know a lot of people like I don't consider myself much of a read like I well, let me let me say this. In high school never was into reading, even college yeah. never into reading, but then, you know, just found cuz I think our stories are kind of similar here. Yeah. Obviously you're way ahead of me, but it was just like this light bulb came on and I had to learn more. And that's, you know, going to Barnes and Noble, finding a new book, find, listening to podcasts, hearing what books that they're recommending on their podcasts um, or the guests are recommending to read. That's like their favorite financial book, because yep. it sounds maybe boring to people that haven't, I, I guess, just had that light bulb go off. But when it goes off, right. you you are all in because you you now see a path that you didn't see before. And that that's why I call this podcast Money Vision You, because now you are learning to sharpen that money vision to see opportunities the way the wealthy do that you couldn't see before without that money vision. And so I think that's a really cool, really cool story that you've got there. And that 
one spark, just uh, just getting that one book of Rich Dad, Poor Dad put you on a path of uh, big time financial literacy. And now uh, you help a lot of people in, in teaching that. And so let's dive into some of the different topics here, starting yeah. with, you know, on your background in, in your audio or, or, or on your video background, you have the shred method. Tell yeah. us about that. What does it, what does that mean? So the shred method, I, uh, I discovered this and, and I don't want to say like I created it cause this has been a, 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 sure. a method or a, a philosophy of cash flow management that's been used really for decades, but it's not super prevalent in the United States for a very main reason. And that is that lenders here by and large, don't want a lot of people to know about it. Um, the, the, the origination of this idea actually started in Australia and so some people might call this an Australian mortgage. We have since adapted and modified what we do. So the shred method is not just um, what I'll describe here in a moment in terms of cash flow management, but it's also then what do you do once you've shredded your debt? How do you create equity in, in multiple assets? How do you spin that, that equity into other investments and then create massive passive permanent streams of income? Um, but in 2010, a friend of mine introduced me to this idea and I kind of took it with a grain of salt and really dive in that deep. It was about two years later in 2012, where my wife and I had just bought uh, the biggest home that that we had lived in to date. Mm -hmm. So we had a $300,000 mortgage and, and, you know, we were thinking, oh my God, this is going to take us forever to pay off. <laughs> and then I started realizing that we had the shred method in our hip pocket and I took it really seriously from 2012 until 2015. And in that amount of time, Stuart, we erased a $300,000 mortgage. So in about wow. 3.7 years, um, we were debt-free, no mortgage whatsoever and lived that way for about nine months, you know, and our mortgage payment had been somewhere in the neighborhood of like 16 to $1,800 a month uh, with escrows. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have an extra two grand a month, it's life-changing for a lot of people. You know, mm -hmm. it just creates a different level of of uh, choice and option and flexibility. And um, and then I realized, oh gosh, rates are so low. And I think at the time rates had dipped down into like three and a half percent range. And I thought, well, what if I pull out $200,000 in equity in this property that's now ballooned in value up to four or 500,000. And I put that 200 grand to work for me. And so I put it in uh, real estate syndications and other real estate investments. And it ended up churning enough cash flow on a monthly basis that it covered my mortgage payment on the $200,000 that I borrowed. So we were technically mm. living free, right? Yeah. But our money was growing month after month after month. Yeah. And we were shredding at the same time. So within about two and a half years, $200,000 was gone, right? But it was still making money for us in those investments. And I, and I realized at the time that what, what Robert Kiyosaki may have missed in his book, and you probably remember this, some of your listeners may as well, that that a home is a liability because it takes money out of your pocket. Right. But an asset is money that puts money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing that if you use the shred method effectively, you can take your home, which Kiyosaki would call a liability, and turn it into an asset uh, because you're using the equity in your home in a very creative and you know, pro mm -hmm. profit motive way. And so now we teach people how to do that using the shred method, how to blast away debt in record time, create massive amounts of equity in your property, deploy that equity in ways that generate revenue, 
mm-hmm. so that you can live free and eventually, um, you know, have financial freedom. You have more in passive income than you have in expenses. Okay. So let's dive, let's dive into this because this is definitely a new topic on the podcast. Yeah. So first of all, you know, it, it's, it's so unique because uh, I guess Dave Ramsey listeners would be like, oh, you got back into debt in, in a sense. And, yeah. and that's where, you know, I think, you know, guys like you and I and other people that just see the other opportunities that are available, understand yeah. that, yeah, you're taking on debt, but that, that, that debt is making you money. And so that's a huge difference there. You just got to understand the difference between good and bad debt, but let's dive into, okay. So you paid a $300,000 house or mortgage off. And how do you even go about getting, you know, you got 200,000 of equity pulled out of the house. How do you even do that? And does that just become cash or is that like a loan? Yeah. Kind of take us into the nitty gritty of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you don't mind, Stuart, before I do, I want to make a comment about Money Vision U because I loved what you said about it really is shaping and changing the vision you have of your own money. And so one of the things that occurred to me, and I'm going to circle back to your question, but one of the things that occurred to me is when people talk about retirement, and I'm, I'm going to ask you this question because I'd love to see what your answers are, mm-hmm. but when when most people think about retirement, how are they thinking about retirement in terms of, you know, either having enough money to retire or uh, making sure, like, what what would be your take on how most people approach retirement? I would think that, um, man, it depends on the class of people I guess you're looking at, but for most, for the most part, so, some people it's as low as just wanting Social Security to be able to pay your expenses, and that's right. it. And you're right. really not getting to live much outside of that. You're not having to work necessarily, but you're taking care of your expenses. You don't have to work. And yeah, you, yeah. you might be old and not able to work or things like that. And then I guess the step above that, I would say, is people are trying to plan for retirement to where the money that they've saved for retirement, whether it's yep. IRA, whatever it is, it covers their expenses, but then they can go do some of the vacations or adventures or bucket list items that they always dreamed about, you know, things like that. And so I would say that those would probably be the two main classes of, of, of thinking that, that I would see. I love it. You you nailed it. I mean, I think that the, the first one you mentioned social security is sort of like, I'm going to limp along to retirement and get there. Mm -hmm. And hopefully there's enough money coming in from the government or some other source that, I can afford my expenses and continue to live my lifestyle. The second is these folks that are like, I just need to create a big enough pile of money that I can live off of that money for the rest of forever and never run out. Right. Mm-hmm. And my mentality was you can actually get to financial freedom faster. If you also then begin to suppress what your life, what your liabilities or your monthly expenses are. And I'm not necessarily, I am talking about fire, but I'm not talking about the financially independent retire early movement in, in the like super, um, super frugal coupon, everything, spend less, spend less, spend less. For me, it was more about how do I, how do I eradicate the majority of my monthly bills that would be like fixed monthly expenses, car payment, student loan payment, house payment, because if you have no house payment, and you have access to the equity in your home to do other things, then you actually need less money at retirement in order to live comfortably. So I'm challenging, and, and I'm a bit of a contrarian when it comes to retirement, because some people will say, well, just put enough money in the market 
and you'll be fine after 40 years. And my thought process has always been, I don't want to wait 40 years. I'd like to be done in 10 or 15 or 20. 100%. And the way to do that is you minimize your expenses. So if you're making really good money right off the bat, shred your debt, then use the equity you have in, in said asset to invest in something that generates money month after month after month. All the while you're still shredding whatever you're, you know, you're, you're buying or investing in. Um, so, you know, the, the way it worked for me, I shredded a $300,000 mortgage by doing a couple of things. Number one, we decreased our expenses. So we paid off our, our car first mm -hmm. that freed up 350 or $400 a month in payment, the extra 350 or four a month in payment on that gets rolled into the shred method, which then goes to start attacking the mortgage. And the interesting thing about the shred method and, and attacking, as I say, or shredding your mortgage is you're actually sending large lump sum payments to the principal balance of the mortgage. Mm -hmm. And when you do, you're lopping off huge chunks of the mortgage at a time. Mm -hmm. And instead of a 30 year fixed mortgage, you might be able to knock it out in three to five years, depending on your discretionary income. And once you do that, whether it's your goal is to completely pay it off or just pay it down to the ridiculous, like pay it, pay a $300,000 mortgage down to 75 grand. You could do mm -hmm. a couple of things. You could recast your mortgage, which means the mortgage company says, well, previously we amortized this over 30 years and you owed 300. Now you only owe 75, but you have, you know, 27 years left. Yeah. Your payments, 300 bucks a month. Right. Yeah. So you could do that, or you could pay off the entirety of your 30-year fixed amortized mortgage with a home equity line of credit, in which case your payment is just simple interest on whatever it is you owe. Um, so there's there's a variety of strategies within the shred method, depending on what people want to do. Um, the cash we took out was very simply a cash out refi. So we just went back to, the, to our lender and said, hey, we want to do a 30-year fixed mortgage, 200 grand. And they cut you a check at closing for $200,000 and you get to go do with it what you please. Um, okay. That's a pretty cool feeling when they cut you a cashier's check for 200 Big check. Grand, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I would say that it changes the kind of investments that you can get into because most of us are thinking about retirement or financial freedom as, well, I'm going to put 500 or 700 or a thousand bucks a month into the S&P 500 index fund. Mm -hmm. But when you're dropping a hundred grand into a real estate deal, you might be getting a 15 or 20% return on the money, not a, a, you know, hopefully get a seven or 8% return on the S and P 500. Right. So it totally shifts the kind of investments that you're also you know capable of mm -hmm. when you leverage this strategy over a period of time. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. You have more possibilities because, you know, to get into a lot of syndication deals, you know, we'll do those ourselves to get into those. Sometimes it's a minimum of 50,000 or yep. maybe it's 25,000 if it's a smaller deal, but even I've heard of minimums of a hundred thousand. So some of these deals, yep. you know, because sometimes they only want so many people in the deal and the lead sponsor, they don't want to have to deal with a hundred people at $5,000 investment. <laughs> That's just yes. a headache. You'd rather deal totally. with 10 people at, you know, a hundred thousand, whatever it is. And yep. so- but back to you pulling the equity out, first of all, so you did a cash out refinance. So basically you just swapped your mortgage for another more, uh, it swapped your loan for a new loan. And with that new loan, you were able to pull out equity in which the bank gave you $200,000 check. You can go use that on whatever you want. Yep. And I guess one 
key point of that would just be that you would have, well, you don't have to wait until interest rates are lower, but that's why I guess a lot of people a couple of years ago when the rates were really low, a lot of people were refinancing even their 30 year mortgage into a 15 year mortgage because the payment was even lower uh, than the 30 year payment because the interest rates were so much cheaper. And I think people need to also remember with the banks don't necessarily want you to pay off your mortgage that fast because they want to make money. That's how they make money. And so they want their interest. It's essentially a bond for them. And so they want their interest payments. Otherwise they don't make money. I mean, if you got your whole house paid off, that's not necessarily good for them. So I think people don't necessarily understand the maybe leverage that you can have with banks and lenders because they want to loan you the money. If you've proven that you can pay off a $300,000 mortgage, you're probably going to be able to get some good terms and things like that. And so you did the refinance method and so did you care as much about the interest rate? And I I think you did say that the interest rates were lower, but did you care as much or was it more about the 200,000 being pulled out so you can use that for other investments? And then that investment can pay for the mortgage while you have a little bit of extra on top of that to continue to reinvest and things like that. What was your thought process like there? Yeah, this is a great question because, you know, a lot of people are hung up on the rate. So mm-hmm. if the rate is high right now, there are folks who don't want to buy a home or or re- certainly refinance their home when rates are higher than what they currently have. But for us, because of the way the shred method works, even at a even at a, a five six seven percent mortgage rate, the effective APR, which is what the system helps to drive down, you could get an effective APR of like two to two and a half on a seven percent mortgage. Define when you're APR. The what, what's APR? So the um, annual percentage rate. Okay. So the APR is, is essentially the amount of money you're paying in interest on the money you're borrowing. Okay. And when we talk about the the APR, if let's say that 6% is what is, is um, advertised and you go in and you, you say, okay, I'm going to seal the deal on a 6% mortgage. And then you get to the closing table and it shows on your truth and lending disclosure that your actual APR is more like 6.4%. And you'll go, hey, why is it 6.4%? Well, there were fees and uh, some closing costs and things like that that were rolled into the note. So if you calculate all that together, it's actually 6.4%. It works the reverse way, the opposite way with the shred method. We can actually take a a 6 or 7% interest rate and get down to 2 or 2.5% on an effective APR because you're blasting away the mortgage in in record time. So you're paying a significantly smaller amount of interest on the mortgage itself. And this, I think, is really key, Stuart. For your listeners, one of the things I would have them do is go look at your statements, whether it's your car loan, your student loan, your mortgage, and see how much of your payment every single month is going to principal and how much is going to interest. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the misnomer. When you first buy a home, you know, an, an amortization table on a on a 30-year fixed mortgage visually looks like a waterfall. It's like this very long, slow waterfall. And effectively, what you're seeing is at the top of the waterfall is how much interest you're paying on the on the mortgage. And at the bottom of the waterfall is how much interest you're paying on the mortgage at, at mm-hmm. year 30. Right. So it's actually in year 21 of a 30-year fixed mortgage that you will have paid off half of your home. Wow. Year 21, which means wow. 21 years of paying a high amount of interest 
the majority of it's between year one and year seven, let's say. So actually, if someone has just bought a home, it is the single best time to use the shred method. Even if you only use it for six or 12 months, you're likely to save tens of thousands of dollars in interest over the life of that mortgage itself. Um, so that's that's what we're doing. We're essentially kind of playing the bank's game against the bank. Yeah. And in doing so, we pay a significantly smaller amount of interest and get to that financial freedom point faster because we're creating more and more equity in our property every single month. Okay. So if let me try and see if I can summarize here yeah, yeah. accurately. Um, banks, if you have a 30-year mortgage, 21 years into it, which is crazy, is when you have paid off half of your house. So if it's a 300,000 or your mortgage, so if it's a $300,000 mortgage, you haven't paid 150,000 of principal until you're 21. That's exactly you're right. You're essentially saying attack the principal as much as you can. So your monthly payment, your lender with escrow payment might be, I don't know, call it $1,000. Yep. Try and find a way to add 250. 300, five, whatever you can do to attack that principal payment, because then all of a sudden you are going to be having a lot more principal early on and you're going to be paying a lot more towards principal and less towards interest. Principal, you get back and, and tax free at that uh, because of debt. Interest, you don't get back. And so if you just do the normal schedule for 30 year mortgage, pay your uh, monthly bill every month for 30 years. You're going to pay, be paying a drastic amount more in interest than compared to if, if you can just attack a little bit of principal, start shredding that um, mortgage or that note as much as you can, and then use the bank's game against them. That's kind of the summary. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and this this might even bring it into more clarity too for your listener, Stuart. If you um, if you if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year. And you've got a car loan and a mortgage, let's say, and let's say the car loans at four or 5% and you owe, let's say 40 grand and you owe, you own a mortgage or you own a home, you have a mortgage against a home and you've borrowed $300,000, but it's at 7%. So if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you have a $300,000 home and a $40,000 car notes on both of them, you're probably paying around $25,000 a year in interest. Okay, between wow. between the both of them. Wow. Um, somewhere between 21 and 25. But that's that's 20 to 25% of your income right. that you're paying in interest. That's money you you might as well just light on fire, right? Mm -hmm. And there are people who will say, yeah, but the the borrowed money allows me to buy what I want when I want. And I don't disagree with that at all. Sure. But what if there's a a more efficient way of using the money that you're making so that your interest to income ratio which is how much of what you make is sent out in interest. What if that ratio is smaller? You know, what if you're not sending 20 or 25%, you're sending 15% or 10%. It's like giving yourself an immediate raise. And so one of the goals my wife and I've had for years is how do we get down to a point where we're spending somewhere between four and 6% of our annual income in interest. Interesting. And so the majority of the interest that we, that we pay um, is not against a liability. It's against an asset. So mm -hmm. not only mm -hmm. is it, we're willing to pay that interest, but it's also kind of creating financial arbitrage, interest rate arbitrage, because I'll happily borrow at 5% if I know I'm making 10, right? Uh -huh. On whatever the investment is. So yeah. 
our goal, I think, as as and and hopefully this all relates to the people to, to the people listening, but this whole idea of money vision you is where you're at right now could look drastically different in the future, but you have to envision what that looks like. So if right now you're sending 20 or 25% of your income out in interest payments, what would it look like? And how would you get to a point where only 5% or 10% of your income goes out in interest? Mm-hmm. And how much more uh, how much more capable would you be of building assets and blasting away debt and all of that at the time? Yeah, this is just higher level thinking. It, it and I love it because I I love strategy. You know, obviously I love finances, but even strategy, whatever I'm doing, I I, I love thinking. And, and you're helping our audience and myself think at a higher level about what you're doing. You know, if you have a hundred thousand, or it, I love the stat you gave of uh, being potentially paying 20 to 25% in interest, find a yeah. way to minimize that interest payment. Um, and I real quick follow-up. So then would you, what about a 15 year mortgage? Cause those are yeah. uh, options that are pretty common as well. Do you yeah. recommend maybe just doing those or would it be the same story with the interest payments with the waterfall structure? Yeah, it's, this is such a good question. Um, so fi- the, the, the issue that I have with 15 year fixed mortgages is a 15 year fix by its very nature is going to have a higher mortgage payment than what a 30 year fixed would do. Mm-hmm. And people already, I think are feeling somewhat strapped and stretched when it comes to what their expenses are relative to what their income is. So a lot of folks I know will say, Hey, I, I got a 10 year or a 15 year mortgage. Cause I just want to be done with the mortgage. But what happens if there's a job loss or there's an illness or there's some change in income. Mm-hmm. Now you're strapped in a 15 year fixed payment. Gotcha. When in reality, if you have a 30 year mortgage, uh, you know, 30 year amortized mortgage, but you're lump sum, you're sending in lump sum payments to the principal, you'll actually do the same thing and then some. And it won't feel like, oh gosh, this yeah. is so stressful because I have a $2,000 payment versus a $1,200 payment. Um, when you use the shred method, part of our strategy is no, take out as big and long of a mortgage as you can, 30 years, 40 years if they're offering it, um, because it minimizes the payment and frees up more cash flow, more, more discretionary income. And that discretionary income is what cycles through the shred account that allows you to tackle your car loan payment, your student loans, or your mortgage. Um, so to answer your question simply, Stuart, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of 15 year because of the size of the payment it creates and mm-hmm. the additional stress that that can put on a family. Okay. So basically flexibility is the name of the game. When you have Indeed. a 15 year mortgage, you maybe double your mortgage payment compared to 30 year mortgage, just do that and then pay as much principal as you can when you can to try yeah. and shred. And then the I think people also... Uh, I think, uh, I guess a financial literacy topic that people need to understand that you've been talking about is that money is not necessarily, yes, real estate is more illiquid. Like you can't just go get it in and out in a couple of days, yep. but you can, as, as if you're paying principal, you've been paying principal hard on your $300,000 mortgage. Okay. You've got a hundred thousand into it in principal. Yep. That's not tied up. You're not ever, you're not, not going to see that again until you sell it or even potentially refinance, but you know, refinance is an option, but yep. you can get that money out that you are putting into it. So it's not lost and can't yep. be touched. Uh, and it actually, 
Yeah, I, I think that's such a good concept that people aren't necessarily aware of with something in particular like real estate. Yes, Indeed. you're paying principal, but you can get that out through certain refinances or home equity lines of credit and things like that. And I think that's, that's a super uh, good point there. That's exactly right. The line of credit is is critical um, for anyone that owns a home. You know, what I'll often ask is, do you have a HELOC on your primary residence? And if they don't have one, I'll ask them why. And they'll say, well, I just, you know, I don't need to put a roof on my house or, you know, take a vacation or buy a boat or whatever they typically do with a HELOC. And in actuality, the HELOC becomes a very, very critical financial tool for people to use. Um, the HELOC is like a two-way street. Money goes in and money comes out. Money goes in, money comes out. But a mortgage is a one-way street. When money goes in, it doesn't come back out again unless you either refinance or you sell your property. Hmm. So without a HELOC to have liquidity, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of like people will say, well, why would I pay more into my mortgage? I could make more in the market as an example. I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. And and I'll say, hey, I don't disagree most of the time that you could probably make more if you're putting it out there. But the issue is not, for most people, it's not an income problem. It's a liquidity problem. You can put money in the market, sure. But if you put it in a Roth IRA or a 401k, you're right. not getting it out. It, you're going to get it out at 59 and a half to 70 and a half. Yep. And anytime outside of those the, that window, the government's telling you how much you can take out and win. But if you have a line of credit and you're actively paying down your mortgage, you're actually creating a liquidity pool that allows you to go buy rental real estate or you know, buy a thousand shares of Disney when it dips to a certain price, right? Whatever, whatever your thing is. Um, that's the power of using the shred method is it's, it creates so much flexibility and high level Stuart. This is what I would tell people. If you want to take control of your money and your life, the shred method is something you have to check out. If people feel like I'm just out of control of my money, or I don't feel like I have enough. Part of the problem is you're, you're following really traditional wisdom of, I'm going to put it all in 401k or Roth IRA. Again, I don't necessarily think those are bad ideas. It's just, if you rethink the way that maybe your future looks from a retirement standpoint, you might second guess your decision to do that first, as opposed to doing maybe the shred method for a year or two, and then being able to do that, but do it in mass where you're just writing a $6,000 check into your yeah. Roth IRA every year. And what you, what you're essentially doing for us is just helping us understand the full rule book to financial literacy in this game of life. You know, some people are only playing with a couple of cards in the full deck and they don't realize the other cards that are potentially an option, not necessarily that those are going to be the ones that you use or don't use. You, you've said a couple of times, you know, sometimes you're correct in, in your thinking, but are you at least thinking about this option? Yes. And so you're just trying to enhance the financial literacy to see all the different opportunities to maybe move your money around because you talked about it a couple times, liquidity, flexibility yeah. with your money, uh, you know, just for listeners, liquid just means you can get that money and use it whenever you need to. Okay. That's right. Illiquid. It's accessible. It's, it's yeah, it's accessible compared to yep. illiquid. It's tied up uh, or something like that. So you're just uh, really laying out the playbook of different options that you can have to attack the journey of financial freedom. And, and I love it. It's just thinking at such a high level. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money Vision U. If this is something that added value to you, then please subscribe, leave a review, and share. 
We are passionate about teaching financial literacy so you can learn to take control of your financial future. If you want to learn more, then follow us on social media platforms at MoneyVisionU. We look forward to catching you in the next class.